The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Acts, in particular Acts 16, and I will let you in on a secret. The loop was wrong this week. We are not continuing in our mixtape series. Uh, we are actually doing something else. We, we are in a very soft and, and around-the-way manner uh, beginning the series that we're going to spend the fall in looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Um, the majority of time, for those of you that are guests with us or have been relatively new with us for the summer, the majority of the time throughout the year when we gather together on Sunday, we like to take a book of the Bible and work our way through that book verse by verse, thought by thought, uh, to understand what God has intended for his church throughout the entirety of that work. And this summer we did something a little bit different, and we'll do that on occasion, but Starting this week and moving into the fall, we are going to spend our time exploring the book of Philippians. So let me just encourage you, if you have not yet started to read that, as we've been mentioning it through the summer, go ahead and start reading it. It's four chapters. It's not super long. Go ahead and begin just reading it, thinking about it, praying through it throughout the week. Um, I'll also let you know that we will most likely... Uh, begin our partnering to remember Bible memory project again. If you were with us years ago, you might remember as a congregation, many of us took up the challenge to memorize the book of Philippians. Uh, we printed out some memory work and some journals for us to do together, and we didn't teach on Philippians. We just memorized it. So now that we're going to teach on Philippians, we figured it'd be a good time to try to memorize it again with more people having come, and many of us probably not have refreshed what we learned back then. So look out for that. We're probably going to do that. Um, but this morning... We are going to get started looking at the book of Philippians by way of Acts 16. And the reason we're going to start in Acts 16 is because Acts 16 narrates for us the birth of the church in Philippi. We learn a little bit about how this church was established by the Lord. And even as we read the story of how it was established, we'll begin to see in that story themes that are going to define the letter that Paul will later write to the church. So things that we'll see a lot of this fall, we get glimpses of in the way the church was established. So Acts 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, well, we thank you again for the rich and immense privilege it is to be here this morning, uh, for you by your Holy Spirit to have stirred our hearts to gather us together, that we might make use of the faculties, abilities, the, the bodies, the minds, the, the ears, the, 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 all that you have given us to, to hear from you, that you by your Spirit might do the work of continually transforming us bit by bit and likeness by likeness into a reflection of your Son. That's what we want more than anything. So we ask again, as we do every week, that you would do that miracle for us this morning as we hear from your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It, it should come as, as no surprise to you that when we get into the book of Philippians, Jesus and the gospel are going to be central themes of the letter. Uh, but this morning, as we begin to look at how that church the letter was written to was started, I want you maybe to understand Jesus and in a sense the idea of the gospel from a bit of a different perspective as we look at the story. You know, historically when an, when an emperor or a king or a ruler would conquer a foreign land in battle, 
before they would go and visit that new territory that was now part of their kingdom, what they would do is send an envoy ahead of them, a group of messengers, an envoy that would go to this new land, and they would take a proclamation with them, and they would go to this new land, and they would read this declaration or this proclamation to these new citizens of this new kingdom. And this proclamation would lay out the blessings of life that were to be theirs now that they're citizens of a new kingdom. And this proclamation would outline what was to be theirs for obedience. And oftentimes it would outline what was to be theirs for rebellion. They would declare to these new citizens the good news, so to speak, of life under this new king. The declaration of this good news that this envoy would bring to these new citizens of this new kingdom is the word that you and I translate as gospel. See, gospel is not an inherently religious word. It was a commonly understood, commonly used, mostly political word in the life of the first century. It declared a a life-altering victory, a life-changing battle had occurred. And there were new blessings for being a part of this kingdom. There was a new status conferred upon you by nature of this. This was the proclamation of the good news. So, as you think about Acts 16, and we get there in a moment, some 20 years after Jesus had been crucified on a cross and victoriously raised three days later from the dead, small envoys carrying good news had been moving out and about throughout the Roman Empire. They had been declaring to people that victory had been won. A decisive battle had occurred. A new kingdom was being established, and they could be partakers, citizens of that kingdom. The sin that had held you captive has been overcome. The judgment from the one true God that you and I rightly deserved for our rebellion has been pardoned. The payment for our rebellion, the payment for our sin has been paid in full by someone else, by God's own son. But he's not dead. He's alive. And his resurrection from the dead is your assurance of victory. And this king now reigns in eternity at the right hand of God where you too will reign with him forever. You can become citizens of this new eternal kingdom with all the rights, all the blessings, and all the protection afforded a citizen of God's kingdom. And as these envoys would go out throughout the empire, Sparks of new life under Jesus' rule in God's new kingdom were starting to slowly burn into wildfires. And so when you come to Acts 16, you've got to see, we're just going to get a little story of one such envoy that was making its way throughout the Roman Empire by the highways and byways that Rome had established. So look down at your Bibles. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. 
This envoy, Luke tells us, set sail from Troas and landed in the port of Neapolis. And if I could have gotten technology to work, I would have given you a map so you could see how that actually works. But here's the thing. How they ended up in Troas in the first place is an entirely different story, but it's important for understanding how this church was born. Paul and this envoy had wanted to go in a different direction originally to take the gospel into what was then known as Asia. And when you read, if you go backwards in chapter 16, just a few verses, back into verse 6, where it says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They come up to Mycenae, attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to. What Luke is just telling you there, if you had geography in your head, is that they tried to go north, they tried to go south, they tried to go west, but they couldn't go in any other direction. God wouldn't let them get there. So they went east, as far as they could get themselves to go, and they found themselves in a port city called Troas. And it was there that God let them in on why it was they couldn't go anywhere else. In 16 verses 9 through 10, listen to how God changed their plans. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God gave Paul a vision that there was a people in a place where the gospel, the good news proclaiming this new victory needed to be proclaimed. And I will say this as we continue through this chapter. I would contest that today, this very same call to us, tell us the good news Tell us the good news that has changed and is now animating your life. This same call is coming to us today from our own culture and our own society and even from our own kids. You don't have to write this down. We'll probably talk about this more throughout the fall. But the greater city of Richmond, the greater area of Richmond, the city and the surrounding counties are estimated to grow to a 1.34 million by 2020 and 2030. It's a 9% increase over the last decade. Between 2013 and 2016, the greater metropolitan Richmond area was the fastest growing mid to large size city in the state of Virginia. And every decade, the US government does a census of religion throughout the country. They only do it every 10 years. The last one was done in, was in 2010. So if you listen to the numbers from 2010 and, and add the growth percentages of the population over the last decade, and for the last decade, you can see how the numbers trend. In 2010, 49% of the population of Greater Richmond, so that's over 500,000 plus people, said in the government census on religion that they claimed no religion. None. Not Christianity, no religion. Over half of the Greater Richmond area. Of those who did claim and indicate some religious adherence or preference, 79% of them, so over 920,000 plus, indicated something other than what we would consider evangelical Christianity, loosely defined by the government as a belief in Jesus and the sufficiency of the Bible. So 79%, 2010, over 920 plus thousand people in the greater Richmond area would by all definition, by their own self-admission, not be followers of Jesus. And you can only expect as the population numbers continue to trend up, those same numbers would trend with them. If you do the math, the average church in America is about 80 to 85 people. 
round it up to 100. Just to keep up with the population growth recorded in 2010, there would need to be 9,200 plus churches established in the city of Richmond to reach those who have not yet known the good news of Jesus. God has many people in this place. And I would contest to us this morning that the call that Paul got that night from God by the man of Macedonia to come and tell us the gospel, we're getting the same call from the very people around us. So having received that vision and that clarity, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke, that's who was in this envoy, they set sail from Troas and they simply followed the shipping lanes that had been established by the Roman Empire. They took it north to Neapolis. And when they landed in Neapolis, they got on the Via Ignatia, one of the most famous and most established roads in the Roman Empire. And they took the Via Ignatia inland for about 10 miles. They probably did it on foot till they came to the city of Philippi. And here's the thing, no doubt, many people along the way, on foot or even in the ports, saw this little envoy and thought nothing of them. No suspicion was aroused by their traveling or by their presence. Just ordinary people being faithful to an extraordinary God. And in the most ordinary of ways, the gospel came to Europe, most specifically to Philippi. Because if you didn't know it already or not, you're about to hear the story of the very first church ever planted in the continent of Europe. That's where Philippi was. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, we don't have a lot of time to go into its history, but by the time that Paul and his envoy got there, the, the most notorious thing that had happened in the most recent years leading up to their arrival was a decisive battle in which the armies that were still loyal to Julius Caesar who had been murdered, the armies that were loyal to him led by Octavian and Mark Antony defeated the rebellious forces led by Brutus and Cassius. That happened in Philippi. And because of that battle and the victory won in that battle, Philippi became an official Roman colony. Citizens given the good news of official Roman status and all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that came along with that. Philippi became known in the, the Roman world as Rome itself in miniature. Everything politically, socially, philosophically, culturally was representative right there in Philippi as it was in Rome. They had received a gospel telling them who they were. And it was into this little Rome that Paul and this envoy of very ordinary saints would venture in to proclaim the life-altering, script-flipping, legacy-changing, joy-inducing gospel. Good news to everyone who would listen. Listen to what happened, verse 12. We remained in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Now, it was Paul's strategy, just so you can understand what's happening. It was Paul's strategy every time he would go into a new city to locate the synagogue and go into the synagogue. And, and as a rabbi, Paul would be given a privilege that others were not afforded. When he would come into a synagogue as a traveling visitor or rabbi, they would ask him to teach. They would ask him to open up the scrolls, to read God's word, and to teach the synagogue as a teacher. And when Paul had that opportunity in the synagogues, he would open up God's word and teach from the Old Testament the truth about Jesus. That's what he would do. 
He'd stand up and say, this man, Jesus, who you crucified, was the long-awaited Messiah that God had promised. He's alive. He's established a new kingdom, and you can be citizens of that kingdom. He'd preach the gospel. So he gets in Philippi, and he looks for a synagogue, but there isn't a synagogue, so he has to go down by the river. Why down by the river? Because for a synagogue to be formed, there had to be a quorum of 10 believing men in the city. So in this little Rome, in Philippi, this growing cosmopolitan area right there on the Via Ignacia in the Roman Empire, there were not 10 believing men who could gather together to form a synagogue. So Paul heard about a place of prayer, and it happened to be down by the river. And so Paul and the envoy head that way. And what they discover is that all hope wasn't lost. Their strategy may have had to change, but God was at work. This place of prayer down by the river held a small group of women who had gathered together to pray. And I want you to know that this is the group that God had prepared beforehand to spark the revival that would change this city and establish the first gospel preaching church in the continent of Europe. It was this group. And as we read this story, pay attention to the people that God uses to show himself off. Pay attention to the people that God uses to make much of himself. Paul and the envoy joined these women for prayer. And as would be the custom, they would ask Paul as a rabbi to teach because they were there. And when Paul had the opportunity to teach, he would read from God's word and tell them about Jesus. And that's what he did down by the river. And as Paul began to tell them about Jesus, God moved. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So we know Lydia was a businesswoman who by inference of her description most likely has her own workers and most likely, as we'll learn in the next couple of verses, her own sizable home. Luke tells us that she was a worshiper of God, which means that she was not born an Israelite. She was a a Jewish convert, a proselyte, so to speak. She wasn't born into the Jewish people. But she would come to pray and regularly hear from God's word. So she was successful. She had her own things going in life, but there was something she felt like she didn't have. There was more she was looking for. And on this day, God appointed for this to be the day that she would receive salvation. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you've got Lydia, a successful businesswoman who in her heart knows there's something more going on out there. There's something more than just what she has around her and she sees. And it's through, of all things, a Bible study, so to speak. That God moves and opens up her eyes and her life is radically transformed. God has always been moving through such things. Please don't ever let it be said at Redemption Hill, given whatever strategies we employ to see people come to know Jesus, that we don't like Bible studies, that they're old, that people don't do those anymore. God has been saving people through the reading and teaching of his word since the very beginning. That's what happened right here with Lydia There are many people in this city of the 900 plus thousand who self-admittedly are not followers of Jesus who will be saved that God has appointed through such means. Let's not neglect the confidence in God moving through his word to see people's lives changed. 
But there's something else that happens right here. I'll just mention it because you'll see it again. And it's going to be a big theme in the letter that Paul writes to them. A relationship is immediately formed. Immediately, as God opens up her eyes, she repents of her sins, believes into Jesus. She's right there ready to take care of Paul and the rest of the envoy. She's prevailing upon them to meet their needs. There's a relationship and a unity that gets established that's very important to the church. And Paul's going to mention it a few more times, or Luke will hear, but then it's going to be a big theme in Philippians. The first church in Europe more than likely gathered in the home of this woman named Lydia, right there. But God wasn't done in Philippi yet. He wasn't done with his envoy. Let's keep reading. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She was mocking Paul and this envoy. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So now Luke is going to introduce us to another woman. He's telling us another story. A young girl who has been under the oppression of evil spirits and in that oppression was being exploited by a group of unscrupulous businessmen for their own gain, being opportunistic about the moment. And she's following Paul and the envoy around the city, mocking them. And here's the thing, Paul tolerated it for a little bit. There would be ramifications for dealing with this and Paul understood that. He tolerated it for a little bit. But then, in the power of Christ, In the name of Jesus, Paul entered into this girl's world and God set her free. It wasn't through a Bible study like Lydia. Paul stepped in and this girl felt and experienced the grace of God as he met her most pressing need. Friends, there are people in this city for whom the truth of the gospel will be authenticated through the love of God's people. There are people who who simply won't or can't be at your Bible study like Lydia, who simply won't for various reasons and can't for various reasons be a part of many of those efforts, but for whom the truth of what it is you say, the truth of what it is you stand for, God authenticates through your overflowing love of others. It's simply the ordinary faithfulness of loving your own neighbor as yourself. Those acts, you can load them with all kinds of political baggage if you want and call them different aspects of justice and not justice. God has been calling it loving your neighbor since the beginning. And he uses the love of his people for one another and for those around them to authenticate the truth of their message. This core group in Philippi is growing. It's made of a wealthy businesswoman who heard the truth of the gospel in a study of God's word and a formerly possessed young girl. That's not how many people plan to plant their churches. But these are the people that God is choosing to show off his glory and his grace. One heard the gospel proclaimed through God's word and God opened up her eyes. Another was set free from years of oppression and exploitation through the power of Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us much more about this young girl. 
But as Paul knew, the freedom that she experienced through the grace of God did come with a price for somebody. Listen to the rest of the story. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Those guys lost their moneymaker and they were mad. The gospel had impacted their way of living through setting this girl free. This one that they had been exploiting for their own gain, forget what it means to her. And the gospel has come in and radically changed that situation. But there's a price. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The story just took a turn, didn't it? It all seemed to be going so well. Down by the river, open up the Bible, people get saved. People walking around making fun of you, turn around, the name of Jesus, set free and saved. A woman in the core group's got enough space for everybody to come to hear God's word preached, for more people to hear it and get saved. It all seems to be going so well. Why in the world would God allow for something like this to happen? It doesn't seem to fit the flow of the narrative. But again, God has a purpose and a vantage point that you and I are in the daily process of learning how to trust. You see, it's going to be here in this Philippian prison that one of the Bible's most memorable and spectacular conversions would occur. And Paul will talk about this imprisonment and other imprisonments more in the letter that he will write them later. Listen to this story, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know how you imagine this scene. If you've read this story before or if you're familiar with it, I know I have tried my best to imagine what a first century Roman prison must look like and where they must be sitting and how they must be feeling. But if you go back and read the story, I don't know if you've ever included the fact that they had been stripped of their garments and beaten with rods. They were bound in chains in the innermost cloistered prison together against those walls, naked and bleeding. Beaten with rods, in some light spanking and bruising. Their backs would have been torn open. Then their bodies bound. And there they are laying, singing, praying, rejoicing. And Luke said it was at this point in verse 26, there was suddenly a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. The prisoners getting out was a career-ending, if not life-ending mistake for this jailer. He lived a privileged life as a Roman citizen in the job that he had, but he also lived under the harsh weight of Roman rule and law. He knew what was coming to him. 
if those prisoners got out. In verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the quintessential question in life. And it all came crashing home for this jailer in a moment of crisis. But you see, things had built up to that for him. Even in his interaction with Paul and, and Silas, he knew why they were there. He knew of what they had done in the name of Jesus for that girl. He knew the impact that it had on those who were using that girl for their own gain. He had heard the stories of what they had been preaching related and what was happening to other people. And there they are, bleeding and beaten in the inner chamber of the prison, praying and singing with joy, telling the story of who this God is. This question that he had didn't come out of the blue. He had heard what they were saying. He saw their manner of life. He saw the impact that they had, that God had through them on other people. And in a moment of tremendous crisis, it all came down on him. And it pressed in. What must I do to be saved? In the newspaper in Raleigh, Durham, about three years ago, there was an op-ed the beginning of the op-ed went like this. We, the agnostics, the atheists and skeptics, we're looking for someone whose faith is evident when faith is not the question. We'll be open to your religion when we meet someone whose everyday joy and ability to cope with pain exceeds that of our own. Someone who's just as warm, excited, and caring when dealing with people as they are when talking about their own religion. This is what that jailer experienced that night in Paul. Now, some of you are here this morning probably asking the same question. I want you to listen to the answer. Verse 31, he says, what must I do? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They proclaimed to him the gospel, the good news of citizenship in God's kingdom, the good news that a decisive battle had been fought, a decisive victory had occurred, that there were new rights, privileges, and blessings afforded to them by faith in this new king, that salvation, as he said, comes to those who believe into the Lord Jesus, believe indeed in this man, the king, and that there is no way for him to be right with God apart through faith in Jesus. Spoke to him the gospel, just as Paul would later write to the church in Rome. It's not the one who does work but the one who believes in him who justifies the godly. To him, his faith is counted as righteousness. They told him about the king. They proclaimed to him the good news of the kingdom. And they called him to believe in Jesus Christ, and he did. Luke records the rest of that evening that at the same time, he, verse 33, took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. So immediately, almost like Lydia, 
after God opened up her eyes to see his glory in Jesus. And she began to believe into Jesus. This jailer almost immediately now begins to take care of Paul, begins to take care of this envoy, a relationship beyond anything that we could establish God has put between his people. There's a new kind of family and relationship that being established, a precious one to God, one that should be precious to his people. And this jailer immediately tries to take care of them as he washes their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. For those of you who have believed into Jesus, who have asked this same question, and God has shown you his mercy and his grace in his son, being baptized is an act of obedience proclaiming your faith and confidence publicly in Jesus. We would love to teach you more about that, help you better understand that, and before the weather gets too cold, take you down by the river. That's where we do the baptisms as well. Read from God's word and baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He took care of Paul and their wounds, and then he brought them to his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced. Some of your translations will say he was filled with joy, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. There was gospel joy that night in Philippi. I want you to understand as we prepare to open up this letter that Paul will later write to this church, apart from the idea, the reality, and the truth of the gospel, apart from the reality and the truth of Jesus, one of the central themes that Paul is going to write to the church that he has seen God establish here in this story is that of joy. Everyday joy, gospel joy. 16 times in a letter of four chapters, Paul is going to talk about joy, about having joy in Jesus and call this same church that God is establishing right here to a life of joy. It doesn't matter what century the person finds themselves in, if it's first century Rome or 21st century Richmond, everyone is searching for joy. The possessions may change, the, the successes may be redefined, Fame may look different, work may look different, leisure may look different, experience may look different, but in all times and in all places, men and women and children are going through these means trying to find real joy. And what Paul is going to help the church to see and remember, and we're going to see it over and over and over again through the letter, is that God gives a joy whose foundation is eternally secure and stronger than anything else you and I can imagine. The joy that is to be ours, the joy that is to be on display, the joy the world is watching for, the joy that Paul and Silas exhibited in prison, the joy that caught the jailer's eye, it's a joy that is grounded in the reality of Jesus. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. In fact, Luke, the doctor who wrote the book of Acts, wrote the gospel of Luke. He, he wrote a narrative of Jesus' life and ministry, having talked to eyewitnesses and gathered all the information. And he told one story in his gospel. I think, it's in, I think it's in chapter 10. Ray can correct me. I think it's Luke 10, where Jesus sends out his disciples to go do ministry in pairs of two. And they come back and they tell Jesus of all that God had done through them as they went out into the land to tell people about him. And Jesus' response to them in Luke 10 was this. Don't rejoice in that. They were successful. They came back. So much joy in how successful they had been in doing what Jesus sent them out to do. 
He said, don't be happy in that. Don't rejoice that spirits are subject to you. But rejoice, have joy that your names are written in the book of life. Success, fame, fortune, looks, whatever, that's not the basis for real joy. Real joy is built on the grace of God. And I would contest, and we'll look at it as we go through the book of Philippians, because this is a central, dominant theme in the letter. Our continual struggle for joy is a good indicator of our underestimation of the gospel. An underestimation of all that God is continuing to be and do for us in his son. But that night in Philippi, there was real, tangible, profound gospel joy. But then the sun came up. The day had to go on. The sun's about to go down on me, so we gotta keep going. When it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent, you to, let, sent to let you go and therefore come out and go in peace. But listen to Paul, I love this. I love this, the Bible. It doesn't hold anything back. It doesn't hide anything. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and take us out themselves. I could have left that part of the story out. No, no, no. Uncondemned men, Roman citizens, afforded all the rights and privileges of everyone else without being guilty, without being condemned, without the right of process under their own law. You beat me in front of everybody, shamed me in front of everybody around, locked me in prison. No, you walked me out. Now you want me to go out quietly. I'll tell you what, you keep reading, they come, and they do the very thing that Paul asked. They come and they walk him out, and they ask him to leave the city. But as he and that envoy leave the city, you better believe that whole process left a number of open doors for this newly planted church to walk through and tell the story of their great God and the gospel, the good news of his son and his kingdom. Luke reminds us in verse 40 that when they left prison, as they were escorted out, there was something else they needed to do before they left the gates. They went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, when they had seen the church, that even in this short but not yet uneventful visit to Philippi, the, the church that had been established there, not just Lydia, but the brothers, there were others who through their preaching, through their love, through the witness of their joy in that time there, and even in their imprisonment, had come to faith in Jesus. And on their way out, they, they go visit. I know, I yelled, I'm sorry. They go visit. And they encourage them. And then they left. You see, again, it's this aspect of relationship that is developed in the gospel. An overflow of love, first from God to us through his son, then through us to one another and our neighbor. This relationship that is developed and cultivated and established through Jesus, it's precious to God and it should be precious to us. It's a gift that God has given us, grounded in his grace, and it's not to be taken for granted. And it will come under pressure. And it will come under threat. 
And this is what Paul is going to encourage them in and talk about throughout the letter. But it's not just precious to us. Don't miss that it also preaches to a watching world. It's the way that the love of God in us, to us, overflows to one another. But a watching world simply has no answer for, and God in his grace uses, for lack of a better term, to pique their curiosity about why you would do such a thing. And as Peter will remind us, give us a chance to answer for the hope that's in us, the joy that's in us, the joy that's animating what we do and how we, how we live and the choices that we make. This wasn't the last that this church was going to see or hear of from Paul. They would become partners in his larger ministry, supporting the planting and establishing of churches throughout his ministry. On his third missionary, third of four journeys, on his third missionary journey, Paul will make a point to come back through Philippi to see this church because he loved them. They were particularly near and dear to his heart, and we'll hear a lot about that when we read the letter that he will write to them. But, some 10 years from the morning that he stopped by to visit Lydia and the rest of the church on their way out of the city. Approximately 10 years later, Paul's going to find himself in Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested. And he would be imprisoned in Jerusalem and he would be transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he would eventually be granted his right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard before Caesar. But he was going to have to wait. And as he waited in Caesarea for a period of time, they eventually transferred him to Rome where he would wait under house arrest to be able to plead his case before Caesar and hear the verdict on his case. And it was during that imprisonment in Rome, some 10 years after this story, that Paul would write the letter to the church that we're going to explore this fall. A 10-year-old church, much like ours, comprised of very ordinary saints, much like ours, having to learn to live lives of ordinary faithfulness while enjoying the grace of an extraordinary God. He's going to write to them about Jesus. He's going to write to them about the ground of their joy. He's going to write to them about the preciousness, the value of their relationships and unity with one another. And he's going to remind them of God's purpose to see more people enjoy his son. There are many people in this city that God has appointed to enjoy his grace, just like he had in Philippi. And I want you to know as you read Acts 16, of all the stories that Luke could have recorded in what God did in Philippi, he chose these three for a reason. You see, every day, a Jewish man would wake up and he would say a prayer of thanks to God. And there were three things that he would thank God for that he did not wake up a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. When Luke records the story of who God chooses to show off his glory in the establishment of the very first church in Europe, who does he show off? A woman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer, a Gentile. Because Paul's ministry had always been, always will be, grounded and animated by the gospel. And the gospel is big enough, expansive enough, and gracious enough for everyone. And in this little church in Philippi, there were rich, there were poor, there were men, there were women, there were religious and non-religious, politically correct, and enemies of the state. Why? Because the gospel was for everyone. 
No one was too good to not need it. No one so far off that God could not reach them. So friends, as you consider the story of how God moved in a place like Philippi, we don't even have the time to tell the story of what God did for 10 years here. Read the story again and think to yourself, who in your world needs to hear this good news today? Would you consider beginning to take time to pray that God would move in their heart like he did for Lydia? That as he gives you opportunities to share with them the good news of God's kingdom, to proclaim the life-altering grace of God that has so changed you, that as they hear the story through God's word, that God would open up their eyes just like he did for her. Would you be willing to ask yourself, where are there opportunities around you to simply love your neighbor? Those whom God has strategically placed you near. Those whose lives you can enter into in the joy of God's grace. Maybe we could ask ourselves collectively, even as a church, Does our city see our joy? Rodney Stark, some of you might be familiar with Rodney Stark. He wrote one of my most favorite books on church history. One of them is called The Rise of Christianity. And in writing about the impact of the early church from these little envoys that were going out like the one in Acts 16 to the establishment of the churches in beachheads like Philippi, He said, of all the varying things that you could say made an impact that turned the Roman world upside down through these churches, you could put them all together to say one thing. The lives of God's people simply put the gospel on display. That's what he said. And the world around them called them Christians. You realize that's a derogatory term. The church didn't name themselves. They put the nature and character of Christ on display through their life and a world was turned upside down and a world looked at them and called them little Christs in mockery. It might be another sermon for another day, but I do find it somewhat ironic that now in the 21st century we try to identify ourselves as Christians and the world around us commonly calls us hypocrites. Friends, it was simply the ordinary faithfulness of God's people and their enjoyment of the extraordinary grace of God that turned a city like Philippi on its head. Our city, let's go take that op-ed. Our city, Richmond, will be open to Jesus when they meet someone whose everyday joy and ability to cope with pain exceeds that of their own who are just as warm, excited, and caring when dealing with people as they are in talking about their religion. Friends, for God's glory in this city, for the joy of the people around us, for the Lydias, the the slave girls, the jailers in Richmond that God is calling to himself, friends, may we be a people who enjoy Jesus so deeply and overflow in love so sacrificially that one day maybe our city would say of us, as you find in Acts 8, even if I don't agree with what they believe, this is a better place because they were here. Friends, Paul is going to call us 
to a deeper enjoyment of Jesus, a deeper enjoyment of one another, and a deeper enjoyment of the purpose and the mission that he's called us on as his people. Pray with me as we begin this journey through the book of Philippians that God would use it in a profound way in your life and in our life together as a church. I'm going to pray for us, and, and then we're going to respond to God's word together this morning as we receive communion together, as we sing together, as we celebrate the gospel, and as we're sent out as God's people here in this place. So let me pray, and we'll continue. Father, we thank you that you have appointed us to this place in this time, in a city that you are calling many people in to faith and enjoyment in your son. God, I ask that you would give us the courage and the confidence in you and your gospel to be able to ask you, who do you want me to go and share this good news with? What doors are you opening up for me to walk through? Give me the courage to be able to share this good news with this person and they might come to know the joy of knowing you. Who around me, who around me is the overflow of your love to me needing to be seen and felt? Who are you calling me to love, to serve? Lord, is the world around me seeing my joy in you? Am I happy in you? Am I unshakable in you? Lord, grow us in our joy and our confidence in you. Lord, help us to go day by day and week by week, not underestimating the fullness of your gospel, the fullness of your grace. We want to be people for whom there is much joy, and much joy is found in this city because we're here. So God, we ask that you would accomplish all of this for your glory. In the name of your Son and our joy, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.